What is a disciple? And is it possible to be a Christian without being one? You might not know it, but you are a disciple. It's just a matter of who you're a disciple of. Each one of us is modeling our lives after someone. So who do you follow? What do you listen to? What vision of the good life is capturing your heart? There's no shortage of roads to destruction, but there is one that leads to eternal life. Jesus is calling you down this path, saying, follow me. To be his disciple means to be an apprentice of Jesus, to model your life after him, to be like him. No matter who you are, where you live, what you do, you can live like Jesus, shining his light to your family, to your community, and your workplace. Discipleship is how his kingdom comes. It's how his will is done, here as it is in heaven. But it requires a decision. Will you follow him? Will you learn from him? Will you let him guide your life, your whole life, to be shaped in his image? Are you trying to be a Christian without being a disciple? The question and the invitation is right in front of you. Are you a disciple? Okay, thanks to Becky for reading um, the passage today. And as she was reading, there's just some things I love about this passage. And I, they're not in my notes, so this could be really dangerous. Um, but if you have a Bible, you can turn your Bible open because this passage is really kind of a lot of fun. And it's also very, I think, intimate in what we see about Jesus and how he relates to his disciples. And there's just a couple of things I want to point out before we get into the message proper. Um, the one thing is, uh, in chapter 21, verse 3, Peter's statement, I'm going fishing. You know, do you hear that? You can hear that lots of different ways. Um, the disciples were sent ahead to go to Galilee and wait for Jesus. But Peter, like many of us, was apparently not very good at waiting. <laughs> so what's he say? I'm gone fishing. That's what he's going to do. He's going to go back to what he knows, right? He's a fisherman. And I think we do that too. When we're in uncertain situations, we gravitate toward what we know. And we see Peter doing that. But we also see the power of his leadership. Because what do the other disciples say? We're coming with you. Right? And it's just this beautiful little glimpse into their humanity and, and what they're doing and the tension they find themselves in, the uncertainty, and how they just, they're going to go do what they do. And, and yet they go out and do it, and it's a, a, a total failure. <laughs> they don't catch anything. I don't know if you've ever been fishing and uh, have caught nothing. I'm not a huge fisherman. I like to eat fish, I like to fish. I don't like killing things. It's just one of those things. So it's kind of a, a, a difficulty for me sometimes uh, when you get to that part of it. Uh, but there's been times I've been fishing and you spend all this time and energy and effort and money and you catch nothing. I can sense how they were feeling so despondent and uh, discouraged when Jesus, the non-fisherman, comes along and tells them what to do. So there's that in the passage. But here's another little, uh, I think, nugget of the passage I think is great. And that is the competition between John and Peter. 
I think there was competition between John and Peter. We see it actually back in John chapter 20. And remember, John is writing this, and he calls himself the other disciple or the beloved disciple all the way through this gospel. And uh, Jesus, the report has come that the tomb is empty, and it says this, Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, right? There's a little bit of a competition here, and we find it again in, uh, in a passage that we read. Then the disciple that Jesus loved <laughs> said to Peter, it's the Lord, because they're both looking and they both can't see properly, right? But John is the younger and maybe had the better eyesight. He's the one that spotted Jesus first. I don't know if that's, this is the case, but I just find a little bit of friendly disciple competition happening in the passage, which is interesting. Last thing, last little nugget. This isn't the end of the sermon, by the way. This has nothing to do with the sermon. I'm just excited about the passage, okay? So the other little thing I just found so interesting is um, John does praise Peter a little bit in a subtle way because when they bring in the nets after Jesus tells them, cast the net on the other side, right? It, it says that, so they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it, like all of them together. There's seven disciples here. They couldn't haul it in. But after Peter sees Jesus, what does it said? say in verse 11? So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore all by himself. I don't know if he was just so amped up, like he was just so energized at seeing Jesus, that what seven disciples couldn't do, he did by himself, and he hauls the net into shore, and uh, there's just kind of this um, energy and humanity, and, and I, I love it, as we see through here. Now, if you're going to ask me why 153 fish, ask Samuel, because I have no idea... I researched this to death, and there's lots of different theories. Um, if you want to go down rabbit trails, you go check that out. Okay, and now for the sermon, back to our usual programming. We've been exploring dinner with Jesus, and um, when we started out the whole series, which is like eight sessions ago, I had something in mind for the series. This is always a dangerous thing when the preacher goes to the text with something in mind that he wants to say. <laughs> That's not the way to preach, by the way. So I went with something in mind. I thought we would learn about hospitality, and we thought we'd learn about loving our neighbor, and the series didn't quite go that way. Instead, I've been actually deeply moved at the way that Jesus reveals himself to the people at the table. And as we think through that, I think I've grown deeper in my appreciation for who Jesus is and what he's calling me to do and who he's calling me to be. And I hope we get that with this last one we're going to look at. Now, there's lots of other meals with Jesus. I encourage you to continue to look at them, but we're going to look at this last one uh, today. But let me ask you a question. If you could have dinner with anyone, past or present, alive or dead, who would it be? And uh, don't, you don't have to shout it all at once. Just think in your own mind. I, I read this last week, um, a blogger who did a survey of all his readers and asked this question to find out what they would say. And they came up with all kinds of names, right? Celebrities, you can think of maybe a few. Religious figures, relatives. Someone said, my younger self. 
That would be interesting. A little, uh, I don't know, existential there or something. But, um, and, but in this blogger survey, there were also biblical figures. And they gave the biblical figure and why they'd want to sit down with them. And that was fascinating. Uh, one guy said, Isaac, because I want to know how he felt when his dad was taking him up to the altar to be sacrificed, right? <laughs> That's an interesting conversation. Uh, and another person said, Joseph, like New Testament Joseph, because he wants to know where Joseph disappeared to. Like, Joseph drops off the radar. Where did you go, dude? Like, what happened? And so that's why. Now, this, this one I'll mention is a little bit disturbing. This person said, Satan. And I heard people gasp, what? And, and not for the reason you think. Now, he says, because I'd want to sit down and ask, so what happened between you and God? And if you had a chance to do it over, would you do it different? I don't know if that's a legitimate question, but uh, I thought it was kind of fascinating as they went through all of this. Well, here's the thing. As Christians, if we're asked that question, we almost have to put a little disclaimer in it. We almost have to say the question like this. If you could have dinner with anyone apart from Jesus, who would it be, right? Because I think our default answer should be Jesus. <laughs> I think it probably should be assumed that we'd want to meet with Jesus. And uh, so we have to put that clause in there. But here's the thing. After seeing Jesus at the dinner table over these last eight weeks, I'm having second thoughts about having Jesus at my dinner table. Because if you've been reading through all the passages, those dinners were not terribly enjoyable. Honestly, they were uncomfortable. Jesus poked his finger into you know, places where he shouldn't have been poking. And he just did things that made people very uncomfortable. And so I might think twice about inviting Jesus over. But here's the thing. Jesus always reveals the truth. And that's one thing that I'm taking away from looking at Jesus at dinner with people. He always reveals the truth. The truth about himself the truth about the situation, and the truth about our heart. And that's what makes it uncomfortable sometimes, that Jesus reveals the truth. And sometimes he does it in a kind of aggressive way, especially with the Pharisees and those who held power. But sometimes he does it in a very gentle way, as we think of people like Martha and others, right? But either way he does it, he still reveals the truth about the condition of our soul. Well, the last dinner with Jesus that we're going to look at isn't actually a dinner at all. What is it? It's breakfast. Best meal of the day, right? And Jesus is cooking fish and bannock or something uh, on the open fire, and he's cooking it for the disciples, and he invites them as the host to come and share breakfast with them. And this is just a wonderful, beautiful image. Well, what has just happened? Jesus has just risen from the dead. And he's appeared to his disciples a number of times. John tells us that in the passage. But now he's meeting with Peter and six other disciples. John is included in this group. And at the heart of this passage, before we get on to kind of the application of the passage, don't miss out on this. The heart of the passage is John's intent to reveal the truth that Jesus is alive and not alive like spiritually or metaphorically. Jesus is alive physically, and that's part of John's burden. And if you read in John chapter 20, just before our passage, verse 30, says this, The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. 
But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. These things are written so that you and I might believe the truth about Jesus. And so this story about Jesus cooking fish and being present and engaged in conversation after he died, clearly died, is proof to us that Jesus is alive. And John says, I'm telling you this story so that you will believe and so that you will have life in the name of Jesus. That's the heart of this passage. That's the heart of every passage in John's gospel. William Barclay, a commentator, said this, The first and simplest aim of this story is to make quite clear the reality of the resurrection. The risen Lord was not a vision, nor a figment of someone's excited imagination, nor the appearance of a spirit or a ghost. It was Jesus who had conquered death and come back to life. That's why he eats. That's why he he does physical things. And that's why he's seen by multiple people. And so this is what we're seeing happening in John's gospel. But there's also something very personal and intimate in the story, right? It's, it's not just about this great theological truth. We find this personal engagement that has to do with the relationship between Jesus and Peter. And that's where we want to land today as we wrestle with the application of this text. Jesus uses two profound visuals. I would say that they're more than visuals. They engage uh, our, our sight, our sound, our smell, <laughs> all of this. And uh, he uses these two profound visuals to tell the truth and bring healing to the fractured relationship that he has with Peter. He uses sights and sounds and smells to activate the memory of Peter regarding two really key events in their life together. So let's look at these two things separately. First of all, the fire. It's a charcoal fire. And it's easy to overlook this. So what? It's a charcoal fire. What does that have to do with anything? Well, apparently it's really important because the word used here in Greek is only used twice in the New Testament and the two times are in the Gospel of John. Anthrakan, I'm probably not pronouncing it right, but it's a very specific word, and it's used to speak about a coal fire, very specifically. And the only other time it appears is in John's gospel, and it's the time, can you guess where this is going? It's the time when Peter is warming himself, and he denies Jesus three times. Coal fire, coal fire. What an interesting parallel that we're being drawn into. And I think Jesus does this very intentionally in order to activate Peter's memory and cause him to confront his failure. The thing about coal fire is it's very different from a bonfire. I've been amazed since I've come to Alberta to see how big the fires get out in places like Pinoca, where my in-laws live. Like, they don't just make a nice small fire like we sometimes would do in the lower mainland when we were allowed to, right? But it's a blazing, you know, bonfire. They're burning every scrap of wood they can find. That's not this kind of fire. This isn't a blazing bonfire. This isn't even a driftwood fire that Jesus has set up. This is a coal fire. I don't know if you've ever been around a coal fire, but in order to get warm from the coal fire, what do you have to do? 
you have to get in close, don't you? You can't start and stand far back. Now think about that. Peter's coming on shore. Jesus is there. There's this awkwardness. You know, he's denied Jesus three times. This is really serious. If you deny me before my, my, or deny me to people, I'll deny you before my father. Like this is really serious stuff. And here's Jesus by a coal fire. And Peter has to get close because he's just jumped in the sea (laughs) and he's dripping wet and he needs to get warm. So Jesus draws Peter in close to him and he causes Peter to confront his failure. Not to induce guilt or shame. That's not what Jesus is doing here, but to bring about healing because we can't find healing unless we face our failures. And that's what Peter is being brought to here. And in fact, Jesus makes it clear when he has the meal with the tax collectors, right? He says, I have not come to call the healthy, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. And that's what's happening here. He's calling Peter to repentance. He's calling Peter to have a change of mind and to return home. Come in, Peter. Come in close to the fire. Don't be a stranger. Don't stay away. And this is what we find happening with this. Jesus always calls us to repentance, and he has a way of putting his finger on the very thing that's going to hold us back. With the tax collectors, he called them on their greed, right? With the Pharisees, he called them on their hypocrisy. With Martha, he called her on her priorities. Jesus has a way of calling us out of calling us to face our failures, face our shortcoming, face our sin, so that we might find healing through repentance. Let me ask a question. If Jesus were to come to your table, what would he call you out on? I think we all know, like personally in our own heart, we have these things that we we struggle with, we wrestle with, and you gotta know that if Jesus is sitting down with us, he's gonna say, hey, great meal, Thanks for the, the extra pudding, but let me just have a word with you about this, right? And that's what Jesus does. He calls us to repentance. What is Jesus calling us to repentance? What, what is it in our lives that he's calling us to turn from and come back home? So Jesus says, come as you are. And the gospel says, come as you are. But we have to be really clear, the gospel does not say, stay as you are. Right? There's, there's a desire for change, and we're finding that at the coal fire as Peter comes closer. And this is why Jesus brings Peter publicly to the coal fire. So just as Peter publicly denies Jesus, now Peter is publicly being brought close to Jesus. And then after breakfast is over, what does Jesus do? We didn't read the passage, but it's pretty familiar. Jesus gives Peter an opportunity three times to say, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. And he declares his loyalty to Jesus three times in the presence of all the witnesses around this coal fire. So Jesus gives this opportunity for Peter to repent, to find healing, and he does it all in a context of love. And that's really important. Okay, so that's the first visual. The second visual is this the catch of fish. It's actually first in the story, but I wanted to save it for last as we go through this. This too is a repeated incident in the life of Peter and Jesus. 
In Luke chapter five, we find the calling of Peter and some other disciples. And what were they doing at the time? They were fishing. And what happened in that story? Anybody remember? They were catching nothing. (laughs) And Jesus comes along and says, put your net on the other side, and they catch all kinds of fish. And then they're so amazed at this, and then Jesus says to them, I will make you fishers of men. Come and follow me. What is Jesus doing here as he shows up on the shore and he says, cast your net on the other side and they get the fish? What's happening? Not only is Jesus calling Peter to repentance, but he's reminding Peter of his first love. He's reminding Peter of their first contact. He's reminding Peter of his true calling to follow after Jesus. And that's what we find here. If the charcoal fire caused Peter to confront his failure, the catch of fish would remind Peter of his calling. That initial thrill, that excitement, his first encounter with Jesus, the amazing uh, adrenaline of following after Jesus for the first time. Do you remember that? If you're a follower of Jesus today, sometimes it's easy for us to forget, isn't it? If we've been along the road for a long time, we're going to have baptisms next week. And I can bet that as we go through these baptisms, a number of them, that it's going to stir up a lot of memories in all of us who have been baptized. And that's a good thing to remember that initial energy and the excitement when we were called to follow after Jesus. In Revelation chapter 2, there's a, a letter to the church in Ephesus. And if you read through it, you'll realize that Jesus, by the Spirit, is praising the people there, saying, you've been faithful, you've been great, you're doing good, but I have one thing against you. You've forgotten your first love. You've grown cold. You've forgotten what it's like to really love me with that kind of passion, the same love that I have for you. And that really strikes close to my heart, too, as I think about my relationship with Christ. Some of you know that I like to ride a motorbike. I didn't ride one today, and I thought maybe I should. Probably have a few more days to go in the season. And I have a great bike that we bought a couple years ago. Christine loves to ride it as well. But it's not my dream bike. My dream bike, this is a Christmas wish list maybe, and some of you, John Shaw, maybe you can get get this for me. Um, My dream bike is a 1983 Kawasaki KZ-1000R, it's an Eddie Lawson replica race bike. That's what I want from the 80s. They actually made one in 1999. I would settle for that as well if you're just shopping this next week and you find one. But it's interesting because that's my dream bike, even though my current bike has way more power, is way more comfortable, and the old bike is way less capable than my current bike. So what does that bike do to me? Every time I see one of those bikes, whether it's online because I might be searching for one, um, or if I happen to stumble across one in person, like my heart starts to beat faster and my knees get a little weak. And some of you are saying, that's ridiculous, but it's true. It happens. Why? Why does it stir me up so much? Well, here's the reason. Because it reminds me of my first ever road bike. (laughs) It reminds me of that first thrill of riding on my 1981 GPZ 550, which was like the baby brother of the Eddie Lawson replica, right? And it reminds me of that initial just surge of energy. 
and enjoyment and the freedom and all that happens when I first started riding motorbikes. And when I see that bike, it brings me back. What brings you back to that initial thrill of following Jesus? For Peter, I think the the whole catch of fish was meant to bring him back. What brings you back to that thrill of following Jesus? Perhaps it's a verse that you read and it comes to mind again, or a song that we sing, or maybe it's an 80s Christian band that you used to like to listen to. Whenever I know that Christine's had a bad day of work, I make sure like Amy Grant straight ahead is playing when she comes home. Uh, just something to, to kind of bring her back. And, and we need that. Maybe it's, it's a friend or someone that you know or a circumstance. I encourage all of us to welcome those events into our lives, to go back and explore them again, because there's value in stirring up that first love, in having that stirred for us by these things. And that's what Jesus is doing for Peter. Well, I'm not sure what guest you would want at your dinner table. And maybe over coffee, you can tell me or tell one another what guest you'd like to have at your dinner table and why. Um, And I've got a few in mind too, but honestly, Jesus is at the top of the list. Jesus is at the top of the list, even though his presence at my table, because he is alive today, his presence at my table means that at times I'm going to feel uncomfortable. Because he's going to call me to repentance, but also remind me of my first love when I fell in love with Jesus for the first time. That's what Jesus does for Peter That's what Jesus is doing for us. So is Jesus at your table? What truth is he speaking to your heart today? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can come to this place and be reminded of your goodness, of your grace, your faithfulness to us. Thank you for the people in our lives that even in dark times, even in difficult times, they come alongside and They're a constant reminder of your love. Father, thank you for these good gifts that bring us back, that call us to turn around, call us to return home, and call us to renew that sense of excitement as we follow after your son. Help us to do that well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.